You have to choose to be a man. You have to choose to harden yourself against a possibility that in this day and age may never come up. But I don't want to be the guy that when that situation might happen, whether it's a car accident and I need to lift a car hood off my wife or kids, or I'm dealt with a, uh, a violent encounter, an active shooter situation, or I find myself stranded on the side of the road in the middle of a blizzard. Like I don't want to be the guy that's wanting because I wasn't willing to place myself under voluntary hardship. What's up, guys? I'm Zach, your host of the Auxoro Podcast, where we bring you face-to-face with music artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, doctors, designers, and other interesting humans in a show that dives deep into the story beyond the surface. You can now support Auxoro with a donation on Patreon, PayPal, or Venmo. We're a completely independent platform with no outside sponsors or investors. And we're grateful for any amount, no matter how small, to help push the conversation forward. If you'd like to support, you can visit patreon.com forward slash Augzoro. Link in the podcast description as well. On Patreon, you get early access to episodes, discounts on merchandise, and other Patreon-exclusive content. Thank you for your support. If you love keeping up with Augzoro, we have a newsletter sent out twice a month with all of our latest content, as well as other articles, podcasts, books, and advice that we find helpful. I'm constantly scrounging the internet for things to improve my life. And I would love nothing more than to be able to share the things that have helped me with you. Go to Augzoro.com and join over a thousand others by subscribing to the newsletter. The link is also in the podcast description. This episode is brought to you by The Aux. The Aux is a short form podcast produced by Augzoro, bringing you a daily dose of uncensored wisdom to jumpstart your life. 10 minutes or less, no bullshit, no topic off limits. We explore topics like fashion, porn, relationships, meditation, and more. You can subscribe to this podcast by searching The Aux, A-U-X, wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, I sit down with Ryan Mickler, founder of The Order of Man, a community helping men master their relationships, health, wealth, and themselves. Having served as a soldier, a father, and a loving husband, Ryan knows what it takes to fulfill your duty as a man. To learn more about Order of Man, please visit the links in the podcast description or go to orderofman.com. Ryan also hosts a podcast by the same name and has written a book called Sovereignty, a battle for the hearts and minds of young men. It's a hell of a read. And if you're at all interested in what we are about to talk about on this podcast, I highly recommend picking up the book. In this episode, Ryan and I discuss the relationship between pain and trauma, what it means to be a good father, the growing concept of speech being equal to violence, Ryan's journey as a financial advisor, and more. Without further ado, please enjoy this deep and wide-ranging conversation with Ryan Mickler of Order of Man. I just want to say that I'm actually going through your book right now, Sovereignty. And oh, right on. Cool. Yeah. I, I, it's a great book. I'm actually up to the battle plan right now. So I'm, I'm towards the end. Yeah. 
I breeze through it. There's a, a shit ton of underlines and notes, which I recently started doing because I felt like after I read something, I could only produce about 5% of what I just read. So I'm like, all yeah. right, I got I to gotta change something up here. Yeah, I do the same thing. Yeah, I, I really enjoy your book. And I think a good place to kind of kick off this conversation is you are pretty open about relationship trauma and a period in your life where you went through a, a separation. And in my life, I've definitely experienced the the pain and trauma of the breakup of a, of a girlfriend. I've never had anything as serious as a, like a committed marriage. But I have ha- went through that type of period where it's, it's kind of like you have this source of pain and you can decide what direction you want to take it. For you, what do you think it is about relationship pain that is such a like a, a source of transformation, especially for guys. There are a lot of guys in my life that I know that have adopted useful habits in the aftermath of a relationship. For you, what do you, what do you think is the source of that kind of transformational energy? It's unfortunate because I think a lot of the times you don't really get woken up until something happens, right? Like we're in this default mode, the status quo. We kind of turn a blind eye to having to improve and get better until something somewhat catastrophic happens. And then we realize our own invincibility or our lack of invincibility, I should say. And I think it's that that causes us to, to improve, to get better, to, to shore up those weaknesses. And, and that wake-up call is valuable. That's what, that's what happened for me anyways. Yeah, yeah. It seems like there's, uh, there's just some extra, I don't know, something about uh, going through the tearing apart of a relationship you are so attached to someone to the point where maybe like I, I know for myself, I've been a little bit too codependent in the past. So it's like, I feel like a part of myself is ripping away with that relationship yeah. too. And, and it's, and it's hard to recover for that. And now, and now I'm trying to take more of the approach in my life where I want to build a, a stable and exciting life for myself. And then as a byproduct, attract someone who wants to spend their life with me and like, well, it'll be a support system. But especially back in the day when I was like, this relationship defines me, I I did not know what to do for like the first (laughs) two to three months. I was kind of like a lost, lost soul, (laughs) just like vengeful in in many ways, which I regret. Yeah, I think we wrap up our identity in our external relationships. And so like you said, when that relationship dynamic changes, then it forces us to reevaluate who we are individually. But, you know, like in in my relationship, when I went through my separation, it was really the the thought that I had to improve myself, that I had to focus on who I was, that I had to become a new man for the right reason, which is not for a woman, by the way, or anybody else, not for your kids, not for a woman, not for boss or somebody you're trying to impress. Like you have to become who you want to be for you. And what's interesting and somewhat ironic about that is that's what attracts people. Like when you're sure about who you are and you improve yourself as a human being for the motive of just being able to love and respect yourself, people are attracted to that. That's what helped save my marriage is I went to work on myself because I wanted to be the best man that I could. And my wife was attracted to that. And so we ended up reconciling and here we are 17 years later. That's beautiful because you know it's it's getting more of a rare thing for marriages to last that long. And 
Yeah, you're right. The catch 22 of wanting to seem attractive to women and seem like that badass dude, but at the same time, not wanting to be needy and feeling like you need to attract that person to your life in order to to validate yourself. It's like when a guy walks in a room that's really a badass, like you just know that he feels like a badass. He doesn't have to say anything about it. You're just like, yeah, that, yeah. Dude, that dude, uh, I'm not going to fuck with that dude. Well, it's funny because most people call it the X factor. And you know, if you, if you know math at all, X is a variable. It's an unknown variable, right? That's why it's mm. called the X factor. You get to solve for X, right? The only people who don't know what the X factor is, is those who don't already have it. Right? Like they can't mm-hmm. figure out what it is. And the guy who has the X factor knows that it's confidence. That's what it is. It's confidence. And, it's, and, and confidence cannot be manufactured. Ego can, arrogance can. And so you know when somebody's full of shit and that person doesn't have the X factor. They just come across as a condescending dick. But the guy who has mm-hmm. the X factor has the real, is the real deal. He has the real deal confidence, which means that he's earned it through competency, through hard work, through effort, through pain and struggle. And he's come out victorious. And that's what the unknown variable is. It's confidence. Yeah. And, and a lot of people, I think, take advantage of that X factor and try to use it to sell back to people. Like I know when I went through breakup, this is about three years ago. I'm single now, but when I'm just Googling all this shit, like how to get back your girlfriend or like how to just seem like an attractive guy. There are all these courses or or whatever that give you like this instant, you know, get your girlfriend back in two days or like two weeks. Just do do these three things, like say these three things to yourself and, and she'll come back to you. And I think it's because it's part of the fact that that X factor is so hard to define that like, no, it's like this essence that you have that you can only get through pain and, and the shit that comes with a breakup, but then also using that pain in a positive way. Like it's not just an easy thing, but people definitely take advantage of that and say like, I have, I have the X factor, whatever it is, people give it different names. And then, you know, like pay, pay 50 bucks for this. And like, I'll tell you how to get your girlfriend. No, but here's the deal. If you have to say you have the X factor, you don't have the X factor. Yeah, it's like the badass. Like you don't right. have to say you're bad. Or honest badass. auto care. Like never take your car to a company called Honest Auto Care because they're lying. <laughs> yeah. Like they don't have yeah, to say like, they're honest if they're honest. It's the same thing. And that's why guys can recognize when somebody else has the X, X factor. If you recognize somebody has it, it's like, oh, well, that's, and you recognize it as competence. That's because you have it too. Like I wrote a blog post called, uh, what did I call it? Fix Yourself First. I actually think I did a podcast on it. Because guys would ask me about my relationship. Mm-hmm. And they ask all the time in our Facebook group. We've got like 65,000 guys over there. And the overwhelming majority of posts that we have to look at are, how do I win my wife back? How do I get a woman? How do I, you know, those kind of posts. And very simply, the answer is fix yourself, correct yourself. And then people will be attracted. Men, women, employers, clients, your, your family, your friends, neighbors, like everybody will be attracted to you if you focus on you, if you focus on them, like when I, when I first went through my separation with my wife, I, I pinned mm-hmm. it all on her. I said, if, if she would change, right? If she would do this and she would do that. And if only she was a quote unquote good wife. And if only she respected me and she changed this behavior and these attitudes, then our marriage would be great. That didn't work. Yeah. If anything, it drove a wedge between us. But when I decided to fix myself first, focus on myself, fix myself, correct my behavior. 
she was influenced by that. And by the way, I'm not saying that she didn't have things that she needed to work on. She certainly did. And she would admit that. But when she saw me improve, this is leadership 101. When she saw me improve, I influenced her to voluntarily want to improve herself. I didn't have to coerce her. She just wanted to be better because she saw that I was being better. Yeah, it's like leading, leading by example instead of telling someone, you know, you need to do this. If someone else sees you becoming the things that you want to see in others, then it kind of like gives them permission to say, okay, if, if this person's doing it, they're not full of shit. So right. maybe I should start doing well, it. Well, it's influence. So a lot of people think leadership is like getting people to do something. And yeah, that kind of is what it is. But it's not tyranny. It's not dictatorship. You're not force, forcing somebody to do something. The best leaders voluntarily get people to do things. And also in a lot of ways, make it seem like it's their idea. That's because they're allowing themselves to be influenced by a positive, influential leader, an example. Yeah. And, and what you were saying about you and your wife both fixing things about yourself, there's a, it, that reminds me of a joke that Bill Burr tells where he's saying that when, they, when him and his wife have discussions about what they need to fix, Bill Burr is like this building that's under construction, full of scaffolds, <laughs> like falling apart. His wife is just like tearing into him about all the shit that he needs to fix about his life, which, which a lot of it he admits is true. But then when it comes to his wife and he says something, she's like this pristine skyscraper and like she never has to do anything. And she's like, everything is perfect about her already. So he's kind of like making fun of that stigma that it's always the, the guy that's working on himself and the relationship to raise to the level of whoever it is, the, the guy or the girl, um, like your, your partner. Yeah, I mean, that's like a common, common understanding, right? But everybody kind of looks like shit when you really get under the hood. And everybody has room to grow. Everybody has an opportunity to improve and mature. That, that's what I look at. It's like, I've just matured. And, and my level of maturity came when I took responsibility, not for her, or I should say, maybe responsibility is not the right, because that could be looked at as something else too, which I can explain in a second. But I didn't take, mm-hmm. I, I didn't try to fix her. I just took responsibility for fixing me. That's a level of maturity. That, that ownership represents maturity. Because immature people, whether it's a grown adult or whether it's a child, they don't take responsibility for themselves. Like, there's no consequences to their actions. They don't take responsibility. They shift blame. If things go wrong, it was somebody else's fault. That's what immature people do. Mature people take responsibility, own it, fix it, come up with some solutions and make themselves and the project and whatever they're dealing with better. Self-accountability is not sexy, I feel like, in a lot of aspects of today's society. like it's, uh, There's a lot of shit that comes with it and, it, and it's not always easy. And I, and I struggle with it myself. And I, you talk about it in your book as well, like make everything your fault and your responsibility and you're actually taking control of your life. You're not, you're not giving other people control over you when you say something is your fault. You're, you're owning it. And it's just... Uh, I'm going through this book right now as well. It's called Coddling of the American Mind. Yeah. And I'm reading it at the same time as your book. And, and there's a lot of crossover between the two. And it makes me think of the college culture, the cancel culture, mm-hmm. which is so pervasive mm-hmm. now on a lot of college campuses where you're basically taught the opposite of self-accountability and that you want to avoid the things that are uncomfortable. You, you don't want to 
take control over, you know, this may be uncomfortable to me at the moment, but maybe there's something for me to learn here. It's kind of like everything is on the person that's hurting you, like quote unquote hurting, because you can't actually hurt someone physically with speech, but it's like all on the other. It's like this other mentality of like, this person is the other and they have nothing to say to me. I'm just going to cut off the conversation entirely. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's certainly easier to do that. Like you could look at it from two different sides. So look at it from the person who's being told that, right? If, I, if I'm going to tell you like, hey, the reason that you're not experiencing the results that you're after is, is not your fault. Like you're doing everything right. It's somebody else's fault. Then you feel pretty good about yourself because right? there's, no, there's no inadequacy in your performance. It's somebody else's fault. So when they improve, then you'll get better. Or when they do their job or stop holding you down or making you the victim, then you'll improve. Now, if you look at it from the person who's perpetuating that lie, I think the reason they're doing it is, is well, it's selfish because it's not reality. And it's an attempt to maintain some sort of power or authority over an individual, right? Because if you're helpless then you have to rely upon me, which makes me feel good. Like people rely on me. Like you could even think about that in the, do you have kids? No, no, So no. you can think about that in the context of children. I have four kids. Like I actually take pride in the fact that I have responsibility for these four little lives who quite frankly would die without me. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I gain a tremendous sense of satisfaction and pride from that. But it would be selfish for me to keep them in this little bubble of mine that we've created for the next three, four, five, mm-hmm. six decades. That's a selfish thing. It's actually better for me to put them under some hardship and some challenge and uh, hold them accountable and have some consequences in place, positive and negative for their behavior. It's not easy. And also, I'm teaching them not to need me. Mm -hmm. As a father, that's not comfortable. But my job is to render myself obsolete, to put myself out of work. I want to be in a position where I'm, I'm wanted by my children even as they're adults and they get into marriage and have their own families and they turn to me for advice, but I don't want to be needed. I don't want them to be hamstringed by our relationship. So I have to be willing to say difficult things, have real conversations, talk about uncomfortable topics like drugs and alcohol and pornography and sex, because that's what is required for them to be self-sufficient, fully sustained human beings. That's my job. Hey guys, I wanted to interrupt this episode real quick to let you guys know that you can now support Augzoro with a donation on Patreon, PayPal, or Venmo. We're a completely independent platform with no outside sponsors or investors, and we're grateful for any amount, no matter how small, to help push the conversation forward. If you'd like to support, you can visit patreon.com forward slash Augzoro. The link is in the podcast description as well. On Patreon, you get early access to episodes, discounts on merchandise, and other Patreon-exclusive content. Also, you can go check out our merch at augzoro.com forward slash store. We have tees and hoodies for sale so you can listen to the show in style. Now back to the episode. Most people are selfish. Like they don't want to like deal with any of the hard stuff. So they'll just lie so they don't have to deal with it. So how do you deal with having four kids when you are parenting them, they're under your control when they're at home or if you're coaching them at sporting events, but then they go off to school and they're getting taught by people that may be full of shit, like maybe are great professors. There's a lot, there's a lot of good teachers out there. And I mean, there's also a lot of shitty teachers and shitty environments out there too, which is coming more to light, like with the whole 
just like the the whole cancel culture, uh, like the bubble mentality mm-hmm. where you think one way and I think the other. How how are you kind of handling that in terms of parenting, knowing that other people are going to have part in molding your kids that you can't really control? That's a great point. And the best thing that I've been able to do, and I can give some specific examples of this, is to teach, yeah, them, sure. is to teach them how to be thinkers. So now... Granted, I, I, okay, so I've got four kids. I've got an 11-year-old, a 9-year-old, a 6-year-old, and a 3-year-old. I'm not going to have in-depth conversations about how to think critically about subjects with my 3-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> but I am going to say, hey, you need to eat all your dinner tonight. Or you need to clean up your mess. Because that's what a 3-year-old understands. But my 11-year-old, he might ask things about... He was reading a book last night. What, was, what did he ask? He asked about, he was reading a book and I don't even know what book it was. I have to look at it. He, he said, dad, what's the global war on terrorism? And I said, well, where'd you hear about that? He's like, oh, I'm reading this book. And they were talking about it. Okay, cool. Let's have a conversation. And then it's not just me teaching him or explaining things to him. It's me being, being more of a coach, which is guiding him towards being able to come up with his own solutions. So we need to learn to ask mm-hmm. better questions. That's actually one of the unintended benefits of me podcasting is I've become a great asker of questions. And I do that with the people I'm trying to teach so I can lead them and guide them and instruct them and teach them what kind of questions they should be asking for themselves. So they can start to formulate their own answers. We talk about politics. We talk about money. It isn't simply me explaining things. It's me asking, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And allowing them to come and formulate their own conclusions. Because I don't want them to rely... So here's the interesting thing. If I want them to listen to me and take everything I say as doctrine without questioning it, then simultaneously what I'm saying is that other positions of authority like school teachers, bosses, employers, et cetera, you should just accept everything they say without questioning it. If on the other hand, I want them to question what other people are saying, then I have to allow them the flexibility and freedom to question what I'm saying. You can't isolate and pick and choose. Like you either want them to question authority or you want them to subject themselves to it. But you don't get to isolate yourself from a position of authority as a father or a mother or whatever position you hold. Yeah, it's like uh, the whole because I said so thing when you, when you tell your kid. And, I, and I've been told countless times by my dad when I was younger growing up, when he's just tired over the line. Yeah, like, because it's easier. Like explaining. Yeah, and, uh, and I understand where he's coming from. Because he has two other sons too, and he's working full time, and he just wants to say like, "Because I said so." Like now, just fucking do it. And so I, I totally get that. But at the same time, I definitely had to. It definitely took me a little bit longer to explore my relationship with authority and like kind of get over just because someone older than me is saying something to me doesn't necessarily mean that it's credible. I what is their experience? What do they do? Do they they take their own advice and do they, do they actually act how they're Mm. portraying themselves to me? And so the, because I said so thing was, it it was useful to get me to do what I had to do, me and my brothers at the time, because it was kind of like a more of a scare tactic. But then I definitely noticed myself working through as a teenager. How, what, like, you know, why am I so afraid to question this adult? Like, what is, what is that sent to me that's telling me like, just fucking do it. Like, just fucking do it. It's a form of, of tyranny. And I'm, and I'm not criticizing your dad. I've said that too. I'm just saying it's, it's, a, it's a form of getting people to do 
it, it's, it's, it's making them your, your subject. You can just do it. Just do what I say. doesn't matter what it, what it means or what it represents or why it is. Just do what I say. I don't want my kids to think that. So, you know, it's a challenge when you're tired and don't want to explain it or have explained it a thousand times. But so what? Welcome to fatherhood. Yeah, my dad. My dad's great. I'm 20 years from now. I'll probably be saying the same shit and have no to doubt. Of course remind you myself. Will. And that wasn't always my dad's response. Sometimes he would yes. actually say, "You know, this is why I need you to do right. what I need you to do." Or he would say, "You know, because I said so." And then 20 minutes later, he'd come back and be like. Let me explain this. Let me break this I down. Know I, yeah, like I know <laughs> I just fucking stormed off uh, 20 minutes ago, but like this yeah. is why I wanted you to do it. So it'd be like kind of roasting me and my brothers in the moment and then coming back and saying like, okay, now that I've cooled off, like this is w- why I wanted you to, you know, take the garbage out every Wednesday mm. or clean your mom's car, like whatever the yeah. fuck it was. Sounds like a good father. Yeah, he is a great father and I'm very grateful. So another thing that I wanted to get into and I alluded to it a little bit before, is the whole speech as violence thing. Because you you joined the National Guard when you were 17 mm-hmm. and you served in Iraq, you, you fought over in Iraq. And so you've experienced real violence in a way that not a lot of people, especially my generation, have as millennials, especially those who are not in the military or, or any of the armed forces. So when you hear people conflating speech with violence and discomfort with real danger. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, it's a softening of society, right? So like if, if for example, the phrase that I don't like, one of the phrases I don't like is verbally attacked or verbally assaulted. It's like, what does that even mean? <laughs> like, I don't understand what yeah. verbally, at- he criticized you. He called you a bad name. He or she didn't like your ideas. Like, what does verbally attacked mean? It, it doesn't mean anything. Now, I will say mm-hmm. with a caveat here that we can call for violence with words. And that's certainly not healthy. Yeah, it's protected in the, in the First Amendment. You can't say, you know, go kill exactly. Zach or go kill Ryan. That, that's exactly. illegal. And that, that to me is different than somebody disagreeing you or, with you or even calling mm-hmm. you a bad name. Like, okay, yeah, so you called me a bad name. That, that's it? Okay, well, I, I think I can live. So... You know, when we start, if we start doing things like another one I don't like is vulnerability is strength. No, it's not. It may require some form of strength to be vulnerable in the right circumstances, but it isn't strength in and of itself. Like words are powerful. So let's use them correctly. And I think when we start to redefine words or, or conflate definitions with things they don't really mean, it's just a tactic. It's a strategy to get people to do what you want. You know, so yeah, I'm not a big fan of the the verbally attacking, the verbally assaulting, like grow up, grow spine. Like if that's what you think is, if if that's threatening you, if if you're having a hard time with that, then life's going to be real difficult for you. It's all relative. So yeah, you know, people call me names every day. They, they, they mock and ridicule and a little what we're doing. And, you know, I can let that stuff slide because I actually have like real things to worry about. One of them is being in battle and being in Ramadi in 2005. That gave me a new perspective as to what violence is. It gave me a new perspective as to what hate is. It gave me a new perspective as to what consequences of our actions and the actions of others are and why we should defend ourselves and protect ourselves and fight for the things we believe in. And if somebody wants to swear at me or call me a name, like that's the least of my worries. 
Hey guys, this is a reminder that you can now follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Auxoro. If you're on Instagram, it's at Auxoro. Twitter and Facebook is at Auxoro Mag. You can search Auxoro on all three and we will pop up. We post behind the scenes content and clips that you will not get anywhere else if you don't follow us on social media. And it also helps get the word out when you tag us, tag the episodes, and let other people know that you're listening to Auxoro. Now, back to the episode. As we're kind of in the midst of the the whole cancel culture, I try to understand why students are feeling this way. I think I kind of escaped that because... I graduated in 2015 when it was kind of starting to get going. And I was also playing baseball in college. So when I wasn't in class, I was at practice or, or lifting or at like team meetings and shit like that. So it wasn't, I, it wasn't like the typical college experience where you have all this free time to... And you probably had coaches getting in your face and yelling at you and telling you how stupid you were and everything else. And you're like, oh, okay, well, these guys love me actually still. Oh, yeah. Like I... I had a conversation with my high school coach the other day about how if he said the shit that he <laughs> Could you said imagine? today yeah. but to us, like parents and fucking people yeah. would be calling for right. his head as the head coach and which happens today, but I'm grateful that he would kind of take us to take us aside after games and be like, You guys played like fucking little bitches right. today. Like what like what's going on? just kind of ripping into us. And he was a great coach too. It wasn't, it wasn't just constantly shitting on us. It was like shitting on us and giving us the skills. To no, that's because up. he had the right motive, right? Yeah. Yeah. He wanted you to, he knew what you were capable of. I had drill sergeants like that. You know, they were just like, I thought they were just, this is the biggest dicks, man. I'm like, why are these guys acting like this? But I realized it's their job. It's their job to, to, to break us down to a degree and then strengthen us and that's that's what they're doing. So it doesn't mean they don't care about you. It doesn't mean they don't like you. Now, in some cases, our drill sergeant didn't. And that's fine because we didn't like a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it it like you don't you just don't need to take that stuff personally. It, it, and that's what most people do. There's a there's a great book. Uh, I believe the author is Don Miguel Ruiz, mm-hmm. who said uh, the book is The Four Agreements. Have you read it? No, but it's actually on my list in my phone on books to read. Yeah, read that one or listen to it because it's it's a quick read. Anyways, it's pretty short. I'm just trying to pull up the what the four agreements are. I, I know one of them is uh, don't think, take things personally. Mm-hmm. That's what so many people do is like they take things so personally and they think that everything's about them. Like I had, for example, on Instagram the other day, I had uh, done a video about just getting some of your finances in order. And it's pretty like generic advice. There wasn't anything like mm-hmm. groundbreaking in there, earth shattering ideas. But I, but I started the, the video with something like gentlemen, right? Like gentlemen, hey, you know, you got to get your finances in order. Because we're talking to men, like my organization's called Order of Men. And uh, I had this woman come on. And she's like, well, why is this directed at men? Like, this should be for everybody. And I can't believe, you know, she's like, like criticizing mm-hmm. that I would say gentlemen when my audience is men. And I, and I wrote back, I said, you know, like, chill out. Like, not everything's about you. Yeah. Now, if you, we run an organization called Order of Man, where I give men tools and guidance and instruction and resources to help them thrive. Now, if you feel like something I say applies to you, then feel free to use it and share it. And, and hopefully it helps you thrive as well. But don't make everything about you. That's what a lot of people do. So the four agreements, that, that was the uh, second one. Don't take anything personally. The first one is be impeccable with your word. Uh, the third one is don't make assumptions. And the fourth is always do your best. So it, it's a cool read. It's uh, really enlightening. 
Yeah, uh, I'll definitely check that out. And, and while we're on the topic of don't take anything personally, I know you mentioned meditation in your book and meditation is something that's definitely helped me not take things personally because before I started meditation, it was kind of just like reacting to everything, like a knee-jerk reaction. Someone calls me a name or does something to me. And then I like the first thing that comes to my mind, I just fucking say it without thinking about what that person actually just did or what I'm actually about to say. And I've just realized how many people are just walking through life in a shit mood or something bad might have just happened to them or they're really unhappy for whatever reason. And when they say something to me, it's more of a reflection on, okay, like, you know, this person is in a fucking shitty mindset, whatever it is, something terrible probably maybe just happened to them. Maybe they've been working a job they hate for 10 years. Maybe their girlfriend just left them or, or something. But right. that's a bunch of reasons why I don't have to take personally this dude that just shouldered me on the sidewalk and didn't say anything. Like I could just keep walking right. and, you know, not be like that guy. That guy was watching me from a mile away and purposely was like picking me out out of the hundred people in the streets of New York City and just like shouldered me. Like he probably arrogant didn't even fucking need, Yeah. I mean, how arrogant do you need to be, be to believe that that's what that individual is doing? Yeah. <laughs> like, again, not everything is about you. Like, I think about that when, you know, occasionally I'll get cut off on the road or something like we all have. And my knee jerk reaction is like, Oh, what? you know, like just explode and like turn into road rage. But I, I, tr- the benefit of the doubt, what I try to do now is, you know, maybe that guy just got a phone call and his wife's in the hospital yeah. and she's on her deathbed. I don't know. I mean, that might be true. Now it's probably not, but even if it's wrong, even that's, if that's a wrong assumption, it just, it's fine. Like I'll still get to my place on time. Like I can let that slide. I can focus my energy and effort on like things that are more important and it's fine. Even if it's not true, it just doesn't pay to take, you're worried about yourself. Right. And, and I just, I, I've, I've realized like how insignificant I really am. You know, I, I, it feels good on the ego. Like we get this many downloads and this many people follow me on social media, but you know what, if I died tomorrow, I think most people that quote unquote know me through the podcast or social media would forget about me in probably less than two weeks, maybe not even that long. I don't know about that. I, th- I think the people that are in your community would still consume your content and think about no, you're you. Right. You're right. To a degree. And, and the, and the tighter your group goes, the more, the longer it would, they would think the more impactful you are. Right. So like my family, for example, my wife and my four kids, I would have the greatest impact on them if I died. But the wider you expand the circle, the less like you're really all that relevant. Mm-hmm. It's, and people think like, we're not special. Like we're not, we're not special. Now we can do great things and we can, we can help and we should, but we're really not as special as we make ourselves out to be. And we place ourselves on these pedestals that we just don't belong. And it's, it's exhausting, frankly, and uh, it's delusional. It just sets you up for all kinds of failure. How do you combat those, the feelings of ego or feeling too special sometimes? Because you, you've built such a large community. And, and that's one of the great things about podcasting is that you can start in your little corner of the world with a few hundred people that listen to your episodes and then you can grow it into this massive thing. And then like your little corner turns into thousands, millions of people. While that's happening, how do you maintain perspective of, um, I'm just going to keep the same mentality as I started. Like I'll be grateful for every listener, every one person that clicks on the website. How do, how do you kind of deal with that dichotomy? Well, for me, I'm, I'm a pretty ambitious guy. So I, I don't, 
I don't feel like I've arrived at anything. And, and in fact, my wife and I talk about this quite often. I don't know that I'll ever feel like that, regardless of the relative success that we've been able to enjoy. So that alone, just being ambitious keeps me humble. So I'm like, okay, great. You know, I've had, I got a hundred thousand downloads. Well, why don't I have a million? Okay. Now I got a million. Why don't I have 10 million? Right. So like that alone, that level of ambition, like I don't really have to celebrate over, I should say overly celebrate. I'm happy when I accomplish milestones and objectives, but I don't overly celebrate those things because I'm on to what's next. Looking at the numbers, at least for me, kind of fucks with you sometimes if you pay too much attention, because it's, it's good to have a pulse on your community and how many people are, are tuning in. And I kind of, uh, I, I had that feeling and I, and I didn't really know if anyone else was feeling that too, but I started out interviewing a bunch of music artists. And they all said the same thing to the point where, you know, you don't know if a song is going to be a smash hit or not. All you can do is try to craft it, craft that song with the best of your ability, and then release it out into the world. Maybe check on it once or twice, see how it's doing. But then more often than not, as soon as they release it, they're already working on the next song that day. And I can, I really identify with that in, in podcasting. Like once you get it out there, that's someone else's episode. Like whatever they want to say about it, whatever they want to, you know, repost or comment, like go for it. I, I hope that it's helpful. But if you if you don't, or you're you have bad thoughts about it in some way, we live in a country with free speech. So say whatever the fuck you want, and I'm on to the next one. Like I'm doing my best on the next one already. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, and that that's a true artist perspective. Anyways, it's it's not about the result; it's about the creation. I think you want to create content, whether it's music or a song or a podcast or a painting or a sculpture or, I don't know, design clothes or whatever. Whatever it is you do, that's what an artist does. He creates. And the feedback, yeah, we get wrapped up in it, but it's really irrelevant. If you're creating something that you enjoy and you find meaning in and purpose and you find that there's a few people who are served by what you do, then man, you're doing Mm. it right. The other thing I do to keep my ego out of the way is I just try to maintain focus on my priorities, like which for me is my family. Like that, that's, that's, that's my greatest priority. So I do a lot of my business to throttle it back. Like there's a lot of opportunities that present themselves. There's opportunities and, 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 and gigs and speaking appearances that I say no to. Because if I say yes to those things, then that would come at the expense of me being home with my family. And I'm not interested in doing that. So when I look into my wife's eyes and I look into my kids' eyes and I see how much they need me and rely on me and, and need my support, then it's very easy for me to turn down these things that would stroke the ego, but wouldn't help me realize my priorities. Yeah, I've, I've definitely been guilty of not spending as much time with my family as I should have, especially in the beginning of podcasting, because I, I was pretty obsessed with it. And I realized I just wasn't hanging out with my brothers as as I used to. And we we didn't mm-hmm. we weren't bonding there it was like this this disconnect and i was watching a video of Shaquille O'Neal earlier today talk about the the loss of Kobe Bryant and knowing mm-hmm. Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe's relationship you would have thought that they were on the phone you know every other week talking to each other and he was so distraught about the the connections that he didn't maintain with people after basketball and He's super busy. Like he, he's in, I think he's probably endorsed by every single uh, insurance company on the planet and uh, Icy Hot and like all this shit. So he's like, he's constantly working and announcing and things like that. And he kind of 
like had this really cathartic moment where he was just crying and, and one of the other guys started to say something and he cut him off. Shaq cut him off and said, I'm not done. Like, I, I, you know, maybe I've been evaluating things wrong in my life. Like maybe I've not been putting the things that I, that I should have. And I was like, that, that just really hit home for me on a smaller scale. Like just, just in my own life, like his, uh, his relationship with Kobe Bryant that he thought he was neglecting and, and Kobe's family and everything like that, like that, uh, I could at least understand a little bit of, of how he felt. Yeah. I don't know if there's ever been a single human being on their deathbed have, has thought to themselves, man, I really wish I would have put more hours into the office. No, but, but I, you no. know, I, I really wish I would have done, done some things so I could have like a thousand more subscribers or followers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are they saying? Oh man, I wish I would have spent more time with my kids. Wish I would have told my wife I loved her a little bit more. Wish I would have called my mom one more time. Yeah, it's like always, uh, we always regret the things that we didn't do. It's yeah. like, uh, you- yeah, and I mean, that's easy. It's easy in hindsight to like think about all the things that you didn't do. You know, and regardless of what you did do, you're still going to do that. But just let it serve as a reminder to keep your priorities in check. So for asking better questions, because I, I want to go back to that framework. And as a podcaster, that's that's something that I'm, interested on a daily basis. I'm always trying to ask better questions, always trying to put myself in a position to be open to learning and doing, doing the research to ask these types of questions. And just as a little bit of background on the process, when I first got into podcasting, I, was, I felt like I was obsessing over the research. Like I, I was in some ways preparing for episodes more than I needed to, or I just had pages and pages of research and I wasn't really focused on asking good questions. I was kind of just regurgitating mm. information back to the guests like that they already said. And it wasn't like me trying to discover something new. So I, I was wondering for you, what, what is your process like as a podcaster when you're trying to think of questions that will A, be interesting and B, get across and do perspective? Yeah, I, you know, there's a couple of principles that come to mind. Number one, I have to genuinely be curious about an individual I'm having on the podcast. Because mm-hmm. if I'm not really curious about what makes that person tick, it's probably not going to make for a great conversation. Because I'm not going to ask great questions because I don't care. <laughs> like, and, and so it's going to come across. And well, like when I started podcasting, I would have a list of like 10 to 15 questions that I wanted to get in. And I see podcasters do this. This is a novice approach, by the way. Like, I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. I'm just saying you should graduate from it at some point where they'll ask the, the, get, the guest the same 12 questions or whatever it is. It's like, how disrespectful can you be? <laughs> like, you're going to hamstring your guest into this, these 12 questions. Like, you're going to keep them from exploring new things. Like, you don't really care about other things outside of these 12 questions. Like, it's a, it's a complete disservice to the guest you're having on. And it's a disservice to your audience. Like, your audience doesn't have a voice you're the mouthpiece for your audience. So you have to do the job for them. Like, what would they ask? Like, have you ever listened to a podcast? You're like, oh man, why doesn't he ask more about that one thing? He moved on too quick from that. Yeah. Well, that means that podcaster potentially missed an opportunity. Now you can't hit it all, but there's opportunities to look for different questions. That's why when I listen to podcasts, whether it's somebody else's or even my own, is I'm always looking for the avenue that wasn't explored. I'm like, what would I, oh man, that was a good question. Oh, what would I have asked after that? Oh, this guy said this, or even if I'm listening to my own podcast, like, what did I miss? 
what little nuggets, what little information did I fail to extract? And what could I have asked to, to get that information? So curiosity is principle number one. Principle number two kind of falls in line with the same thing, but it's giving yourself permission from constraints. So if you constrain yourself to time or topics, oh, I got to make sure this guest talks about like this specific thing because this is the trend of the podcast and the conversation. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, you want to like steer it in the right direction. But if you have it so constrained into this like one avenue that you can talk about, then you don't give yourself permission to explore conversations that an individual's never had. Like I had David Goggins on the podcast uh, a year ago, actually this month, a year mm-hmm. ago. And uh, man, we talked about God. He, he didn't talk about God on other podcasts. We talked about race, expectations as him a black man and me a, a white bearded guy. Like these are conversations we had because I was curious and I freed myself from the constraints of like traditional questions that David Goggins always gets asked, like discipline and commitment and grit and resiliency and all that stuff. We talked about that too, but we explored some topics he hadn't covered. And that's why it was such a popular episode because I gave ourselves permission to go there. So those are the two principles I use most, mostly when it comes to uh, asking better questions of people. Yeah, the, the curiosity for sure is something that kind of made me reform the way that I thought about podcasting because I mentioned I initially started with, with music artists and then I, there were a lot of potential conversations that were passing me by that I wasn't having mm-hmm. because it didn't necessarily fit into the music corner that I confined myself into. And then I kind of just rebranded it more as this general... If whoever I'm interested in, if I see someone on Twitter or listen to a podcast or read their book, like whatever it is, I'm just going to reach out to them. And then I find myself becoming more curious after that initial curiosity. It's like, it's like I'm attracted to that person in some way. And then as I do mm-hmm. the research, I find myself becoming more curious. And I'm like, oh, fuck, like I want to ask about this. Now I want to ask about that. And like all these, <laughs> right. these different things that go on. Well, I, you know, I would actually commend you for starting because what most people will do is they'll try to figure out like just the right way to podcast and just the right things and just the right people to talk to and they'll never launch. So the fact that you were talking with musicians and recording artists as, as your initial entry into the podcasting world and then it expanded from there, I commend you for doing that. I actually did the same thing. So I had a, I had a podcast most people don't know about before Order of Man. It was called Wealth Anatomy and mm-hmm. it was a podcast geared towards helping financial professionals, or excuse me, medical professionals with their finances. So I did about, uh, I want to say 20 or so episodes and realized very quickly that I love the medium of podcasting, but I just wasn't interested in having the same old conversation about my job that I've been doing for a decade. So I switched gears. I pivoted and Order of Men in March of 2015 uh, was, was born. So very much the same thing as you. It's like we expand, we evolve, uh, our interests change. There's other people that inspire us and we need to give ourselves the freedom and flexibility to pursue those avenues. Yeah. And a lot of times you won't even find those avenues until you take the first step. Right? It's kind of like going down a path in the woods. Like there's, there's one trail and you start, you're like, I don't know really what, know where I need to end up or what the trail does because you don't have a map. There's no map. So in order to see where the forks in the road are, you actually have to start walking down the path. And then when you come to a fork in the road, you make a decision based on the information you have at hand. Like you don't have it all then either. And you're like, okay, well, here's this path that goes to the right and it looks, you know, straight and somewhat mild and, you know, kind of easy. And then there's this path over here to the left and it looks rocky and misty. And like, I don't know if I want to go down that route. And so you start taking a path and a step and, you know, you gradually see what's in front of you and you can 
go backwards if you need to and take another trail. Like you, you can be flexible and you should be flexible, but you don't get to see it until you take the first couple of steps. Yeah. And, and, and speaking of financial advising, when I was reading Sovereignty, you're obviously dealing with a lot of masculine traits and you talk about how just because, just because a, a trait is masculine doesn't mean that it's exhibited by only men. And just because a trait is feminine doesn't mean it's exhibited by only women. People, people are a combination of both. And right. I was kind of exploring that a little bit through the framework of a financial advisor. And mm-hmm. I, I just have a, I have a basic understanding of investing. I do a lot of investing in a, a few stocks, but mostly ETFs because I'm doing it for the long term. But there are a lot of masculine and feminine qualities that you need to be a good financial advisor. So for masculine, you would want to be assertive and, and direct in how you invest. You want to make a plan. You want to know what you're doing. You want to, want to lead with your plan and be decisive. That plan, be decisive. And then in times, for example, like when the market shit, you want to be more still. You want to kind of like surrender to what the market is doing. You don't necessarily want to, want to pull out everything you have because the market is going through a fluctuation. And correct me if I'm wrong, because that's I, I don't have an in-depth understanding on everything about investing. But that, no, so far you're right on you're right on point. Yeah. That's just something that I've come to understand. When you have a bunch of money that you're trying to save for the long term, you can capitalize on down markets. And a lot of times that's just leaving your money where it is, which through the framework of masculine and feminine, that would probably be the more feminine, like being still and not being over aggressive, like don't overreact and kind of like just letting things sit. Or allowing your arrogance and your ego and pride to get into the way. Like women are going to be less subject to, generally speaking, arrogance and pride and ego, which tends to want to keep us from, you know, experiencing loss, for example. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot of pressure that men place on themselves to perform. Women don't mm-hmm. necessarily place as much pressure from that perspective. Uh, women all, are also really good at relationships, right? So they'll start taking the advice of others and bringing people in to rally them around as a support unit. And people might think that that doesn't apply in finances. But look, if you're losing 10, 20, 30, 40% in your market portfolio, and you know you're supposed to leave it there, uh, if you isolate yourself, you're gonna you're gonna pull it out. Mm-hmm. You're just going to. But if you bring in trusted advisors and you let go of the ego and you and you listen to what these coaches and advisors and people are telling you, then okay, they're gonna coach you through those difficult times, and you're gonna leave your money there. And history tends to show that those who leave their money alone do better than those who don't. Yeah, I, I imagine as a financial advisor, you're playing the role of therapist a lot, where you might be on the phone. Well, that's with what guy. a good financial advisor will do. A good, uh, so mm-hmm. what most people think that a financial advisor is doing is managing their money. And a lot of advisors say that, well, I'm, I'm going to manage your money. I, I would say if you're looking for a good quality in a financial advisor, that yes, they're going to help you make financial decisions, but they're managing you and your emotions just as much, if not more so than they're managing the portfolio. Because all advisors have access to the same information. Now, a lot of advisors will say, well, this one is proprietary and this one's ours. They're only doing that so they can sell it to you. Like we Mm -hmm. all have access to the same information, right? The same funds, the same stocks, the same markets. It's the way that they're going to manage your expectations and your emotions when things are good and when things are bad that's going to prove their worth. Yeah, I guess that's the downside of the automated investing where it just perpetually puts in money for you and 
it adjusts the percentages is that there's no human in your ear to block you from signing into your app and pulling everything right. out. You're like you don't right. have a human That's element. A it's a it's a great thing if you if you were a robot. <laughs> yeah. But you're not, right? So everybody knows the first rule of investing. Buy low, sell high. And like everybody knows that. Nobody does that. Because what they do is that when the market's really high and doing well, or their friend says, oh, I got this stock and it's like doing amazing. You should invest in it. They're like, oh yeah, I should. Okay, let me do that. It's like, well, you just bought it. Like when it's high. And then when everybody's losing their shirt on a particular portfolio or, or fund or stock, oh, this thing's shit. Like I don't need this anymore. I'm going to get rid of this. And they dump it when it's low. It's like, that's when you should be buying it. It's all cyclical. So the beauty of these robo-advisors and these platforms is that you get your own mistakes and human error out of the way. But then you don't have, like you said, you don't have anybody coming in and saying, hey, 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 like chill. All right, yeah, the market's down. Just chill for a second. Or the market's high. Like I want to buy all this. No, 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 no. Let's buy the things that are doing bad. Like we know the rule. We shouldn't do that. We need, we need that help. Like we need that guidance. We need those advisors in our lives to point us in the right direction and those who aren't emotionally tied to our decisions. Like you, you got so much baggage about your life that sometimes it's hard for you to see the direction you should go. Whether we're talking about relationships or career or health or money, there's so much baggage and noise and internal dialogue. You need an objective third party that isn't tied to the results of your and what it is you're trying to accomplish because they can give you objective advice, not subjective like like you you tend to have. Yeah, it's like uh, there's a book I read a while ago when I first opened my own investing account. Uh, I think it was a, a random walk down Wall Street. And, and one of yeah. the main premises in the book was when a stock that's been a, a perpetual good performer is down, think of it as like you're getting at a discount. Like, like if you walk to a store and there's a $500 leather jacket on sale for $150, you go, hell yeah, I'm going to buy three of those. And then right. ho- hopefully it appreciates and it's maybe, maybe take four or five years. But to think of it that you're, the stock is still has a, a certain future value and you're getting it for much lower in the present. Right. No, like in any other context, nobody buys things when it's overpriced. Mm-hmm. Like you wouldn't like to take your, your leather coat example. You wouldn't go into a store and, and traditionally the coat's worth, you know, $500, but they say, Hey, great news. We've marked it up to $750 today. And you're like, sweet. I'll buy it for 750 when it's only worth 500. Mm-hmm. You would never do that in any context. But when it comes to the stock market, people do that all the time. One of the things I was thinking about when I was reading Sovereignty is a lot of this stuff. I, it seems like most of the people I talk to, most of my friends would agree with this. A lot of the principles in the book that you walk people through, I think most people would agree with. But you are at the ground zero of debate for manhood, which I'm sure invites a lot of dissenting opinions and people that are just extra charged going into the conversation that are looking for debate and, and for whatever reason, it's just, you're kind of like in this uh, exaggerated space for manhood debate because that's the nature of what you do. Right. I mean, what a great place to be, right? Like where people are hopped up on this stuff. Yeah. What, what's some of the typical blowback that you get or, or the, some of the most common criticisms you get about what you write? You know, I actually don't get a whole lot. Well, I should say it this way from rational people, right? Like even women, like women love what we do. 
mm-hmm. because they want, they're looking for real men. Like, oh, a, a, a genuine woman would really, really appreciate a genuine man. So they're not looking for wimps and weenies. Like they're looking for masculine men because that's what complements feminine women. So I, we don't get a lot of pushback, but you know, we, I get things like misogynistic and, and, uh, and toxic masculinity and, you know, these little buzzwords that people like to throw around and, and, and then you hear things, this is fringe thoughts, but well, well, women can be men too, because of gender. I was like, no, like the, the biological requirement is the prerequisite for being a man. Like you, you have to be biologically a male before mm-hmm. you can be a man. Now, granted, to be a man takes a bit more than just being biologically male, but that is the prerequisite. You know, so people like to debate me on that. Mm-hmm. And then, like I said earlier, is like, well, why isn't this for everybody? Why, why is it just for men? Why are you excluding women? I'm not excluding women. I just happen to be talking to men. If it applies to you, then utilize it. But these are, these are mm-hmm. irrational people. These are emotionally charged people. Uh, a lot of, a lot of times they're ignorant people who, uh, are maybe, maybe they were damaged or hurt by men in the past. And so they haven't learned how to compartmentalize their one experience or handful of experiences with an infinite number of possibilities that could actually play out the other way. Uh, so they've never healed from the trauma of abuse or neglect or whatever it may be, or they've just been conditioned through pop culture to believe that men are the enemy and that we live in a tyrannical patriarchy, which obviously isn't the case. And so then they continue to perpetuate that lie and find uh, examples as to why that's the case and choose to ignore and overlook the cases where it, it clearly is not how this world works. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I'm not a feminist, but I love women is because I think the, the current wave of feminism, fourth wave fem- feminism, whatever you want to call it, is hurtful to women. And there's a lot of just anti-men rhetoric. It doesn't make sense, one, because a lot of it is not grounded in truth. And two, it's like a a rising tide lifts Mm -hmm. all boats. When men are doing well, it's better for women. And when women are doing well, it's better for men. It's like we feed off of each other. So it's like the other mentality that we were kind of talking about before. Like if, if 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 you're painting men as the common enemy, then shit's just going to get worse. And same thing for all the guys out there that say like, fuck women, like they're the source of all my problems. It's just, it's just not a productive mentality to have. It's, it's immature too. You know, like we have this Megtown movement in the incels at the opposite end of the spectrum that it's, it's basically the masculine equivalent of, of fourth wave feminism. I don't even like that term feminism. It's like, what does that even mean? Because some people think it means that you think women should be treated equally. Okay, I can get on board with that. And then other people... Yeah, that's what it started as. It started as women having the same rights as men, which of course is what needs to happen and did happen. But then it started to evolve in this into this kind of weird space of, well, now women need to be the same as men. And we're going to erase the biological differences between men and women. If I'm kind of thinking about it from like an evolutionary standpoint, for thousands of years, women being different than men meant that they were second-class citizens. They didn't have the rights of men. So I kind of get the mentality of, well, if men are different than women, if we point out these differences and we accept them, then what if it goes back to women being second-class citizens? But I think now we're at the point where we can celebrate those differences and 
see them as feeding off of each other and that we're both equals in society, but we're not the same. And that's what makes shit run so well. Well, you got to be careful with the word equal, right? Because equal means the same. Equal, equal, like, it, but it doesn't always look the same. Equal, I, I would say equal, equal opportunity. I would say equal opportunity, equal in, in worth and value, but certainly not equal. Like my, like take, take an individual level. I'm better at certain things than my wife is. And she's better at certain things than I am. Does that mean she's of more worth or I'm of more worth or she's inferior or I am or superior? No, it just means that we're better at different things. And Cool. I'm glad we found each other because I can compliment her and she can compliment me. That actually works out pretty well. It's a good arrangement. That's why men and women are attracted to each other. And and this is also the reason why I I kind of laugh and, and, and have a hard time with the men who say, well, I just don't understand women. Right. You're not supposed to. Because if you understood, then you would be a woman. And women aren't ever going to fully understand men. Why? Because you're not a man. Like you're not supposed to understand. Your makeup is not designed to understand. You can take this at the most fundamental level. Now, let's go back to kids, for example. So my, my youngest son, he's riding his bike and he falls off his bike and he scrapes his knee and he starts crying. Well, what's the woman going to do? She's going to run over, pick him up, kiss his boo-boo and his owie and like put a bandaid on it when it probably doesn't need a bandaid and like coddle him, right? Carry him around and like dote on him for the rest of the day. What's the dad going to do? It's like, get up. Like rub some dirt on it, get up, get back on the bike and like, keep going. What's the problem? Like quit being a little baby. Neither one of those are wrong. Now they can be taken to the extreme, both, both by the way, the father, and I'm talking about generalities here, but the father can take it to the extreme, right? And so can the woman. So the idea is that we, we check each other. So my wife goes, runs over there and I say, hun, 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 just, just stop for a second. Let him get up. And if I'm being too hard, she's like, Hey, just like, ease up, like relax. Let me just like help them up. And we check each other so that we keep our parameters of the way that we act and respond to circumstances in, in the proper framework that will actually help our child. Because me just being a tyrant and a dictator and, and, and a bully is not going to help. And her overly babying him and, and coddling him and never letting him experience any hardship is not going to help. So we've got to check each other. And that's why I'm okay with not fully understanding where she's coming from. And, and she needs to understand not that she's not going to fully understand where I come from. That's fine. I'm okay with that. How would it fit into the framework if, say, you have a husband and wife where the wife may be the more masculine one in the relationship and the husband, for whatever reason, is just not the one who lays down the law in the house? How, how do you see that fitting into the order of man framework? I, cool. If it works for you all the power to you. Like I, I'm not going to tell an individual or a family or a, a, a couple like that their dynamic doesn't work. Like, like, again, to go back to my arrogance, like how arrogant would I need mm-hmm. to say, well, you shouldn't do it like that. It may work for you, but that's wrong. I, I, don't, I don't care. Like if that works for you, then all the power to you. Now, when I talk about what it means to be a man, I say as a, a man is a protector, a provider, and a presider, a leader. So if he's fulfilling those roles, or he's on the path of fulfilling those roles, then I think he's stepping into his masculinity. And I think he's on the path of being a man and calling himself a man. If he's neglecting that, if he's shirking those responsibilities, then yes. Now, the way that we go about those things is going to be different. Like I know plenty of of men who I wouldn't consider, for example, the warrior archetype, 
But does that necessarily mean they're less masculine? No. I mean, if they're a protector, a provider, and a presider, and, and they're fulfilling those roles, then all the power to you. And I wish you luck and success. And I hope it works out for you. And I want you to thrive as a man and your wife to thrive as a woman and raise healthy kids and be good members of your community and get after it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, look, here's where I see my role. When men don't know how to be men, they're conflicted about that. They don't feel like that because there's a lot of guys who say, man, I just don't feel like a man. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. They're aimless. Uh, They have no direction or purpose and clarity and focus in their life. That's where I feel like I can really offer some assistance and guidance. But if a guy comes to me and he's like, you know, like I'm happy. We have a good dynamic. I'm, I'm not the most masculine man necessarily, but I, I go out and I work. Um, I love my kids. My wife and I get along. She tends to be more decisive in the relationship and I, and I acquiesce to that. Like, cool. If that works for you, get after it. That's great. When I was going through the book, I, I was looking for things that maybe we might disagree on. And I find value in all the principles that you laid out. I think if there was anything that I disagreed with you on, it would be the source of softening of the manhood. And I know you've alluded to the industrial revolution of fathers going to work and not having the father figure around as much. And I think that that has something to do with it. But I was also, I also see the fact that men have been working for thousands of years in, in different ways, whether you know it was, it was hunter-gathering or they were going into battle for months at a time and, and coming back home where the mother figure was all that was around. So I, I was trying to think of if there was maybe something else that was leading to the softening of, the man, of manhood. And two things that came to mind were the washing away of the biological differences, which we spoke about, because how are you supposed to know what a what it is to be a man or a woman if those things become the same? And two, the lack of gender specific. Uh, well, well, the lack of gender specific spaces kind of goes into the biological differences. And and two would be the absence of uh, like, like people have called it free range childhood, where you're kind of letting your kids go out and explore and. They fuck up, they ride bikes around town and they do whatever they want. And the parents aren't as much of helicopter parents. And with the rise of crime in the 90s, that kind of went away a lot in society where parents started overprotecting their children, I think, in a lot of ways. Do you, do you see anything else besides the industrial revolution that you could point to for the softening of manhood? Or is that pretty much it for you? No, I, th- I, I, don't, I don't disagree with what you're saying. I also think an element is just the ease of modernity, right? It's like, what hardships do we have? Somebody cuts you off on the road. Somebody puts the wrong flavor in your mocha frappuccino. Like, you don't have any hardship. You're cold, you turn on the air conditioning. You want food, you go to the grocery store. You're upset with somebody, you like block them on Facebook. Like, what hardship do you have? Nothing. Nothing. Mm-hmm. You have to voluntarily place yourself under hardship. So these people that complain about masculinity and manhood, the only reason they can complain about it is because men have made it easy for them to do that because we've neutralized the threats. Like you're no longer being chased by saber-toothed tigers. The likelihood of you uh, having to deal with a violent encounter is significantly lower than it's ever been. Our medical technology and advancements have uh, completely eradicated certain illnesses and disease. Like we have this coronavirus 
going around right now. I'm fully confident that, that will be neutralized. A hundred years ago, I, I wouldn't have been so confident that that's the case. Yeah, half of Europe would have been wiped out. <laughs> Already, right? So like, what threat do you have? And what reason do you have to be strong? You have no reason. No reason. You have to choose to be a man. You have to choose to harden yourself against a possibility that in this day and age may never come up. But I don't want to be the guy that when that situation might happen, whether it's a car accident and I need to lift a car hood off my wife or kids, or I'm dealt with a, uh, a violent encounter, an active shooter situation, or I find myself stranded on the side of the road in the middle of a blizzard. Like I don't want to be the guy that's wanting because I wasn't willing to place myself under voluntary hardship. And most people live in such a soft, comfortable, pathetic life that there's no reason to be a man. My friend, Jack Donovan, he, he says this. He says, in this day and age, you have to choose to be a man. It's mm-hmm. no longer a requirement. You have to voluntarily decide that I'm going to place myself under hardship, that I'm going to do it in spite of nobody else asking me to or requiring me to, nobody holding me accountable. There's no test that I need to pass like the Spartans used to do with their Spartan agogi with young men. Mm-hmm. Like You have to voluntarily decide to do it and then hold yourself personally accountable to actually doing it. So this, this ease of modern times uh, has made people very, very soft. And unfortunately, a lot of these people are in for a rude awakening when things get difficult. And they will. It's all cyclical. Things are going to get tougher. And a lot of people are going to find themselves incapable of dealing with it. Yeah, I think for me, a lot of that hardship came in the form of athletics. And yes, when that ended, when my college baseball career came to an end, and I kind of found myself in this limbo period where... I was ready to start the next phase of my life, but I didn't have anything in the form of competition. I did, I like I wasn't feeling the same nervous energy and, you know, butting heads and just getting after it in sports from my job and from my daily life. And uh, well, this was probably about 12, 13 months ago, I made a list about a lot of things that I just wanted to invite into my life that you could consider voluntary suffering. And it was things like public speaking, learning a martial art, getting comfortable with firing a weapon, like the, like a bunch of things that I had never done or had never done on a consistent basis in my life that I just wanted to mm-hmm. do because I just realized after baseball, like I didn't even have to think about the, the competitive this aspect, it just kind of became a part right. of me. And when I lost that, I was like, I need to, like, no one's going to tell me to do this anymore. Like, I'm not going to have a coach tell me like, you need to fucking get your shit together. I have to invite people. Right. Or a team holding you accountable because the victory, yeah, because the victory mattered or, or uh, you were a variable of that victory, right? Like that, that's not just not, not there anymore. Yeah. Like I needed to invite more, more ass kicking into my life and other people, I guess coaches in a way that are going to hold me accountable, like my coaches in baseball used to, whether it's, you know, going to going to Toastmasters or learning jujitsu, like just things that are going to make me suffer so that when I go through involuntary suffering, it's not going to seem as bad. It'll still suck, but it's not going to seem as bad as if I was just, you know, getting home at five o'clock every day and then packing it in then going to sleep. 
Right. Yeah. And you know, what's funny is these weak and pathetic people who, who are soft, they'll actually make fun of you for doing it. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's like, they'll make fun of you for signing up for a Spartan race and, and paying money to go suffer. That's what they say. Oh, I can't believe you pay money and you're going to go get your ass kicked. Like, why would you do that? Well, when shit hits the fan and you aren't capable of dealing with it, then maybe you'll understand why I decided to do that. I get that from most of my former teammates don't really give me shit. I'm, I'm lucky that I went through school with a good group of guys, but... Well, I, they don't because they understand what it's like. Yeah. So th- they're not the people I'm referring to. I'm just yeah. referring generally to those, these people who maybe didn't go through that experience or see why it's important to, to harden yourself against life. Yeah, yeah but, but even, even in that group of teammates, there are a few guys that will give me shit for for going to work out or, or do something physical. They're like, we, we don't need to do that anymore. We don't, we're not playing baseball anymore. Mm. And I'm just like, don't you want to like go hiking and be fit and snowboard? Like I, I want to be able to do the activities that I love, the, the physical activities that I love for the, until I stop breathing, whenever that is. I love snowboarding. Right. I love hiking. I would be an idiot to think that I can just wake up and do that and, and not have to do mobility exercises, not have to do some sort of weight training, like things that will just give me a better quality of life. And I was actually surprised like some of the guys that I talked to that were in some of the best, best shape dudes I've ever been around with are like haven't picked up a weight in two years. And it kind of like blows my mind. Yeah. I mean, that's, it is. And I think it's easy to rest on your laurels, right? At one point you were good. And so you think you always will be, but being good, being strong, being fit, being capable, those are all perishable skills. And so if you aren't finding a way to continue to hone into those things and develop those skills and those practices, then you're, you're getting softer, you're getting weaker by default. So it's something you need to actively fight against. So what I wanted to end on is the, the part of the book where you talk about giving yourself permission to experiment. In your life at the moment, are there any sort of uh, instances or, or routines that stand out that you're experimenting with right now? Or maybe you've done things a certain way for two years and right now you're thinking of like, oh, maybe I should change up my routine a little bit or maybe I should add this in. Anything like that that comes to mind? Yeah. I mean, a huge one is I moved to Maine seven months ago. Like I had no good reason to be out here. I, I dragged my wife and my four kids. I say dragged. I didn't. We, we, we decided to collectively <laughs> go, but I wouldn't have dragged them if they didn't really want to. But you know, I was able to influence them and get them on board. And here we are. Um, we had no good reason to be out here, man. We've got, we, we knew like seven people. They would say we knew the best seven people. And that's true. Uh, now we know, of course, a lot more, but uh, yeah, we, we, we drove across the country with four kids to move to a place where we knew seven people. We invested hundreds of thousands of dollars into not only the property, but improving the property. We're running events from here. And I don't know if this is going to work out. I don't, I don't know if this is where we're going to stay indefinitely. And I've had so many people say, oh man, I wish I could do that, but I've, I've got work and I've got this and my kids are this. And like, it's as if we don't have those sacrifices. Like we haven't, we don't have those variables and those factors to take into consideration. Of course we do. Everybody does. Everybody's got a job. Everybody's got friends that they'd have to leave or family that they'd have to leave. Everybody has memories and responsibilities and difficult conversations they'll need to have. So like, it's, it's always amazing to me when people say, well, I, I can't do it because, and then they give the same like reasons that we had to deal with. You can do it. And you have, look, I don't, I don't want to be the guy who in 20 years is talking with my wife 
from the place we've always lived and saying, yeah, you remember that one time we were going to do that one thing, but we were too scared to do it? (laughs) Mm -hmm. I want to be the guy that says, look at where we are. Like imagine if we never took advantage. Remember when we were talking about doing this and we thought maybe we shouldn't, but we did it anyways. And like, look at us now. That's what I want to be. And so we're in the middle of, of, of that right now. And so far it's playing out pretty well. It's got its challenges, you know, it's got struggles and we've stumbled along the way, but man, what an amazing experience that we're, that we're part of right now. Where were so, you moving from? There, there, there's a, a great example, Utah, Southern Utah. What made you pick Maine? We liked it. Goodness, <laughs> like, good it. I came Fuck out it. here. Yeah, that's it. That's it. That's what I'm saying. It's an experiment. I had no good reason to be out here. I had never been to Maine before. So I came out in, I want to say it was like September, August, September of, uh, it would have been, well, 20, 2018 and fell in love with it. I was sending pictures and videos back to my wife. I came out here for a, a week-long jujitsu camp. And uh, she says, yeah, of course, it's beautiful now. It's the fall in Maine, of course. So I said, well, let's, like, let's go back out in the winter. So her and I came back out in the winter, December of, of 2018. And she fell in love with it. And long story short, we, we ended up finding a house and a property that we just absolutely loved. We came down this hill and the heavens parted and the clouds separated and the angels sang hallelujah. And we're like, well, that's the place. So we put an offer in on it and it took us between getting the financing in order and getting everything closed and taken care of. It took us six months to get our, ourselves out here. And uh, we moved out here in, uh, I think it was July, end of June, beginning of July. And here we are seven months later in the place that, again, we had no good reason to come to, but here we are nonetheless. Perfect. That's beautiful. Yeah, man. Yeah, it's good. And Ryan, thanks again for hopping on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. And I had a blast with this conversation and, and I, I hope you can say the same. This was, this was fun for me. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. I wanted to tell you something because you were asking about asking good questions and being a good podcaster. I got to tell you, man. Like you're on it, you're solid. Like I've done a lot of podcasts with other people, and you know, a lot of times it's awkward, and you can tell they're they're just getting started or uncomfortable or don't really know how to lead the conversation or have a discussion. And that's certainly not you. You you do a wonderful job, man. So I'm excited to see where you take this thing. Thank you. I'm I'm glad it comes off that way. I've definitely I've definitely evolved in how I ask questions and kind of lay out my preparation for the episode because I definitely was that awkward dude that was sticking to the same 12 questions when I started. <laughs> it's part of the tuition of, of getting good at this game, man. And, and uh, you're certainly doing yeah, a great thank job. You. And I, I just wanted to tell you, uh, before, I, before I go, you have uh, one of the most majestic beards I've ever seen. When, when I was watching your <laughs> interviews, it just made me more conscious of how follically challenged I am in some areas of my face. <laughs> I feel like sometimes people aren't listening to me. I'm just like hypnotizing them with my beard and that's why they tune in. I mean, there's definitely an aspect of that. When you see a great beard, there is some sort of hypnotist, uh, just like this element of where maybe you're having... Like like you you can think something about someone because they have a great beard and it kind of like distracts you in a way, which is also just part of the, the essence of having a great beard. Like that's why people love it because it like projects this certain swagger about you. You know, uh, there's, have you ever seen Catch Me If You Can? It's, it's an older movie. With Leonardo with, uh, DiCaprio and Tom uh, Hanks. Yeah. Yes. And Tom Hanks. And then Christopher Walken, who's Leonardo DiCaprio's dad says, uh, you want to know why the, the Yankees always win? 
And, and Leo says, uh, it's because they have Mickey Mantle. <laughs> and he's like, mm-hmm. it's no, it's because the other team can't take their eyes off the pinstripes. And, uh, that, that's what it is. I'm able to hypnotize these people. Uh, it doesn't really matter what I say. Um, I just hypnotize them with my beard and that's why we win. Yeah. You have the, you have the pinstripes on your face. That's, that's, right. that's why, that's why I didn't do video for this podcast. <laughs> right. I was trying right. to take away the, uh, the hypnotist effect, but yeah, th- <laughs> there you go. Thank you again for, for hopping on the podcast and, and I'll link to, wherever people can follow you, where they can buy your book, website, Instagram, everything like that in the, in the intro and in the show notes. And I'll keep you updated on the release. Right on. Thanks, brother. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, it was a pleasure. Of course. Have a good one, Ryan. You too, man. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Augzoro. If you haven't already, please hit us with a five-star rating and comment on Apple Podcasts. This helps us appear higher in searches, which means more people will find out about Augzoro. Other ways to help get the word out is telling a friend, tagging us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, writing a blog post, or supporting us with a donation on Patreon. We are a completely independent platform and we're grateful for every listener who supports this podcast. Thanks for coming along for the ride and I'll see you guys next time.